from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, October 24th. I'm Marco Werman. Europe's debt crisis deepens. We'll hear why that's bad news here. Also, Denmark's immigration laws make it hard for Danes to marry non-Danes. Some couples have to leave the country as a result. Even the colleagues at my work, they said, how could they kick you out? I think that is really, really sad. Plus, flipping the switch on electrical brain stimulation. I am now prepared to mess with my son's neurochemistry too. Allow him success. You know, plug him in in the morning and then rewire the brain. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius waiting to be discovered? Find out on Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Tonight at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Issue number one this presidential election year, you know what it is. It's the economy. And today there was worrying news on that front from Europe. New official figures today show that the combined total debt of all 17 nations using the euro currency has now risen to 90 percent of their gross domestic product. That means the euro debt crisis is far from over, which is bad news for the U.S. economy. Jacob Kierkegaard is with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He says Europe's ailing economy does impact us here in the U.S. The first effect is the direct effect on U.S. exports that the slowdown in Europe has had. Basically, as the economy there is weaker, U.S. companies can sell less goods. And European companies are less likely to invest here in the United States. The second effect that is quite straightforward and measurable is the effect that the slowdown in Europe has on the earnings of U.S. firms with operations in Europe. Uh, Right now, for instance, if you look at companies like General Motors or Ford, uh, we're actually making quite a lot of money here in the United States, but they're losing a lot of money on their operations in Europe. And then there is a third effect, which is a little uh, harder to pin down, but it is the confidence effect. Because if, for instance, there is this nagging fear in the back of a company owner saying, look, maybe the euro is about to collapse and maybe as a result, the global economy and the U.S. economy will be very significantly affected by this. Maybe I should just hold off on that plant expansion or that new equipment that I wanted to buy Mm. until we have clarity about that. So this actually, I believe, is the biggest negative effect from the euro crisis because it also affects financial market confidence. Now, Mitt Romney says the U.S. doesn't want to go down the road to Greece, but I just saw these statistics, incredible statistics, that the U.S. is already on the road to Greece with an enormous debt-to-GDP ratio just behind Belgium and Portugal. Explain that and what hazards does that represent? 
Well, there's no doubt that if you have debt-to-GDP ratios the size of Greece, you're ultimately unlikely to be able to get private investors to finance that for you. That's certainly the experience that Greece have had. Now, the U.S. is in a better position because, first of all, it has much better growth prospects than does Greece. I mean, Greece has had a cumulative decline of GDP of about 20% since its crisis began in 2009. So the fact that we here in the United States had a, compared to Greece, much shallower recession in 2008, 2009, and have been growing, albeit relatively slowly, puts us in a much better position than Greece. Well, I mean, on paper, it does seem the potential is there for transatlantic economic contagion. So why aren't the presidential candidates talking about this? I think there's two reasons for it. First of all, because the situation in Europe has stabilized somewhat in the last three to four months or over the summer. And then there is the other element here, which is that, sort of brutally honest, there's not very much the U.S. president can do about the situation in Europe. Uh, And that's not something that presidential candidates like to admit, this degree of impotence about their influence on world affairs before an election. Jacob Kierkegaard, a research fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Thank you. My pleasure. By the way, I'm headed to London next week. I'll be there in the run-up to the U.S. election trying to find out what people from all corners of the planet think about our presidential vote. And if you are from somewhere other than the U.S., I want to hear from you, too. How does an American president affect your economy, not to mention your security and your future? Tell us at theworld.org slash elections. Just look for the big orange record button. With all the talk about the financial crisis in Europe, it's easy to forget that Europe was in trouble well before the collapse of 2008. From Italy to Spain, the continent was losing piles of manufacturing jobs to cheaper Asian production, and Europe was struggling to cope. The world's Jerry Haddon sends this reminder from the once thriving heart of European shoemaking, Elche, Spain. It's quiet now in this gritty industrial park in Elche. But back in September 2004, a crowd of angry, unemployed Spanish shoe workers marched into the park and set a warehouse on fire, a warehouse containing cheap imported shoes, Chinese shoes. The incident startled this peaceful Mediterranean town. It also highlighted a growing frustration across Europe as competition from Asia was wiping out manufacturing bases like this one. Resident Isabel Gudillas lived that loss of competitiveness up close, Her family owned a successful high-end shoe company in Elche. She says, my parents closed it down when the Chinese started coming in about 15 years ago. The quality of our shoes wasn't the problem, but the price. We couldn't compete. Here in Elche, four out of five people worked in the shoe business, but with that invasion, she says, the number of jobs plummeted. Then came the financial crisis of 2008 and the bursting of Spain's property bubble, With unemployment now at 25% and consumption way down, you'd think there wouldn't be a Spanish shoe left in Spain. But the sector, it seems, is making a comeback. Marianne Canos heads the region's Shoemakers Association, representing some 250 manufacturers. She says since 2010, Elche's business has been stable. Last year, the sector actually added workers. We feel quite satisfied, she says, given the state of the overall economy. Cano says Elche was nearly trodden to death. Then local shoemakers realized that China was hardly the Grim Reaper, but rather a reminder that it was time to evolve. 
In the 80s, she says, Elche was but the shoe factory of the United States. Later, she says, when we started losing competitiveness to Asia, we said, we need to start developing our own brands. Today, when people ask us what we think of the cheap Chinese shoes, we say, that's not our competition anymore. One of Elche's most successful brands is Picolinos, Spain's second largest in terms of sales. Picolinos' corporate headquarters bustles with young, hip designers and marketers. It's a far cry from the traditional Spanish assembly floor that once won the Americans over. Picolinos' Rosana Pedan says her company has been profitable every year for the last 15 years, in part by doing what her former American clients do, Outsourcing. We are now manufacturing our Picolinos brand in China, in Vietnam, El Salvador, Morocco, she says, and here in Spain. 25% of our production is in Spain. And for two years now, they've been selling their brand in China through their retail stores. That's in part why exports have risen by more than 10% each year since 2010. Pedan says over time she expects more of her shoes to be made in Spain, like in the old days. Another successful Elche shoe company, Panama Jack, has just brought all of its production home. Barcelona economist Pedro Nueno says this is happening more and more in Europe as companies realize that cheap labor overseas is sometimes offset by high shipping and other costs. As a result of this, we have what, what I say, people moving with a plant in their back. Uh, so they go to one place, oh my God, it would be better than that other place, and they go to the other place, and at the end they come back. Which means more jobs locally, something Spain desperately needs. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon, Elche, Spain. Europe's economic woes have fueled a resurgence in anti-immigrant sentiments in many countries. That's the background for a debate in Denmark over long-standing immigration laws that often prevent Danes from living in the country with non-European spouses. Asia Bundawi reports from Copenhagen and Brussels. Sarah was born to Palestinian parents in Denmark. She went to school here, attended university here, and has worked for years as a school teacher in the heart of her hometown of Copenhagen. But for the past several years, Sarah wakes up every day at dawn, kisses her husband and children goodbye, and begins her three-hour commute from Malmo, Sweden, across the Orzon Bridge to her school in Copenhagen. You see, Sarah lives in a self-imposed exile in Sweden. I was actually very sad of Denmark because how could they treat me like this? Denmark's restrictive family reunification laws make it incredibly difficult for Danes to marry and live in Denmark with non-European spouses. So prevented from living together in Copenhagen, Sarah and her Jordanian husband moved to Sweden, where they had an easier time getting visas. I am well uh, educated, never done anything uh, against the law. You know, I have always been straight. So why do they treat people like us like that way? Of that, I was very angry. Even the colleagues at my work, they said, how could they kick you out? I think that is really, really sad. In fact, Sarah's situation is not at all unique. Since the immigration law passed in 2002, the bridge connecting Copenhagen to Malmo has come to be known as the Love Bridge. More than 9,000 Danes are estimated to be living in Malmo for this reason. Iman Peterson, a member of the Muslim Council of Denmark, says he's appalled by what he sees as his country's attempt to keep out immigrants who are the spouses of Danish citizens. They're born in Denmark, they're raised in Denmark, but they're treated as foreigners and they're classified as such. And this I see as a major problem. We have a lot of people out there who feel that they're not allowed, they're not being allowed to belong to any country. 
Peterson says the issue is xenophobia, pure and simple, and he calls the fear especially misguided since a relatively small part of Denmark's population, just 10%, is made up of immigrants. I think a lot of people are appalled by what's been happening in Denmark because it is so much contrary to uh, what we can call the Danish spirit for many, many decades. Uh, but then again, there's been a, a, a cleverly orchestrated, we can call it propaganda, making people scared of of, uh, of the immigrants, of the foreigners, of the aliens that have come into our country. Alex Aronson is a member of parliament from the Danish People's Party, one of the most popular right-wing parties in Europe. Aronson says he has nothing against immigrants per se. What he doesn't appreciate is foreigners who move to Denmark but refuse to give up their old customs. And he says this is especially true when it comes to marriage, which is why the family reunification law is so important. We have the whole issue of forced marriages, and we don't want that. So if we stick to our strict legislation on family reunification, we also help young female especially Muslim immigrants in Denmark, and making it possible for them to choose their own husband instead of their fathers and mothers. He's also incensed that Europe's open border policy forces Denmark to let almost anybody in. Aronson says the solution is not just tighter immigration policies in Denmark alone. He wants to end Europe's open border policy altogether. But EU lawmaker Commissioner Cecilia Malmström says that would be a disaster for Denmark and would mark an end to a unified Europe. She maintains that individual members of the EU need to clamp down on the kind of rhetoric coming from right-wing populist parties all across Europe. There is a climate today uh, in many member states of um, nationalism, closing borders, xenophobia, I can say the commission can say the parliament can repeat it, but but it is the the, the local leaders, the national leaders who have to stand up for for the basic principles that, that Europe is founded on. But Denmark, for one, doesn't look like it's any closer to enacting open immigration policies in line with EU principles. And for Sarah's family, their state of dislocation may be permanent. Now we have like settled and for us just to move back again, it feels difficult. Uh, so when you have kids, it's like you're bound you you feel um, it's difficult to go back again. It's like you have to begin from zero. For the world, Amasi Rundawi, Copenhagen and Brussels. Asia's report was supported by a McCloy Fellowship for International Reporting from the American Council on Germany. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Struggling in school is nothing new. Some kids have always had trouble with certain subjects, you know, like math. A recent Oxford University study has raised the possibility of a tantalizing solution, electrical brain stimulation. But are parents ready to flip a switch to make their kids smarter? Here's the latest installment in our weekly series with the PBS program Nova Science Now. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro has a story. Sam is 14 years old and lives in southern England. When he sits down with his guitar, he says the music just flows out of him. When I play guitar, my brain just works like super well. 
I can learn new things really quickly and remember them for a long amount of time. I don't really have to think about it. You know, I just do it. It's kind of natural to me. But when it comes to math, that's a different story. I don't understand it. It's like speaking Chinese to me. I don't know what the heck it means. He's okay with the basics, adding, subtracting, multiplying, but anything more advanced is hard for Sam. Several years ago, his performance in class slumped. Sam was giving up, and his parents, Kathy and Dan, who asked that their last name not be used, were worried. You feel kind of helpless. You 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 want to do the best you can to try and get the best out of your child. As a father, you want to see your son really reaching and aspiring, and really wanting to try. You want your son to believe in himself. So they started looking into all sorts of ways to help Sam: dietary supplements, tutoring, biofeedback. None of it worked. And then Dan stumbled upon a study out of Oxford University. The man who ran that study is a neuroscientist named Roy Cohen Kadosh. We did several experiments showing that if we stimulating the right brain area with the right protocol. We can actually improve mathematical abilities. In his study, Cohen Kadosh used something called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. He put electrodes on each subject's scalp and delivered a trickle of current, about a milliamp, to the brain. By giving this tiny electricity, we can change the responsiveness of the neurons and make them more prone to fire and to participate in a certain cognitive task. Cohen Kadosh applied this electrical current while teaching his subjects certain mathematical tasks. These sessions were repeated multiple times over the course of a week. Those who got the treatment performed better on these tasks compared with those who didn't have the treatment, and this effect lasted upwards of six months. Now TDCS isn't exactly new. In fact, for over a hundred years, scientists have tried it out on everything from treating pain to helping patients who've suffered strokes. Lately, though, there's been a flurry of interest in using this technique to enhance learning. For instance, the U.S. Air Force recently tested this kind of electrical stimulation on those who pilot unmanned drones. It appeared to improve their accuracy at locating enemy targets in complex radar images. And the general public may soon have wider access to the technology. Although TDCS devices are regulated as medical equipment, you can find instructions for do-it-yourself kits online. And a company in Barcelona called Neuroelectrics has just launched an inexpensive version for use in doctors' offices. The apparatus is called StarStim, and marketing director Uri Flegel is trying one on. You basically connect it here. And you put it on. He fits a snug neoprene cap on his head and velcros it beneath his chin. The electrodes can be inserted into any of the twenty or so holes in the cap, depending on which part of the brain requires stimulation. Well, you have different sizes of head, like you wear clothes, so you have small, medium, large caps.、Uh, we design as well caps for kids in different ages. Now the device is intended for medical use, for instance, treating pain. But Flegel says he can't control if doctors decide to use it off-label for other purposes, like enhancing learning. Most of the studies that have looked at TDCS to improve learning have been conducted on adults, and that includes the Oxford study of math abilities. Very little is known about the effects and the side effects of this kind of brain stimulation on kids. 
And yet that's not stopping some parents from wanting to get their hands on this technology. I am now prepared to mess with my son's neurochemistry to allow him success. You know, plug him in in the morning, plug him in the afternoon, and then rewire the brain. Gloriana, not her real name, lives outside of London with her husband and two kids. Depending on which doctor they've seen, her 14-year-old son's been diagnosed with ADD, Asperger's, or dyslexia. He's actually quite good at math, but he has trouble with other subjects. And Gloriana wants to see if this device might help him succeed in school. If we just stand by and see him fail, not be able to have a job, be more isolated, I don't know, I don't want him worse. We just have to give him the best chance of having a normal life. Gloriana is one of many parents who have reached out to Roy Cohen-Kadosh, the Oxford researcher, asking if he could test his device on their kids. In fact, he's just started recruiting children for a new study to see if it can improve their math abilities, just like it did in adults. My job is to be frank with the parents and to tell them what we know at the moment. And like any other treatment, there is a risk. But I don't think that the risk here is high. Still, no one knows if the device might cause subtle harm to a child's developing brain. Which brings us back to Dan and Kathy of southern England. They're trying to figure out if they should enroll their son Sam in the new study at Oxford, and they're torn. The idea of having a very tiny amperage that could have a dramatic improvement in some ways actually sounds radically safer than allowing my son to have some of these other drugs that are so commonly used right now with nobody batting an eye. I would be slightly concerned that it it doesn't become habit-forming. When you see results suddenly go up, does a child suddenly want to use it more and more? That's possibly where I might have to draw the line. And the prospect of this kind of brain enhancement raises big questions for society. Would a device like this give an unfair advantage to wealthy kids whose parents can afford the brain-boosting technology? Might it discourage kids from simply trying harder in school? And as for Sam, as much as he wants to get better at math, he says he doesn't want to be a lab rat. When you attach something to your head, you don't know what's going on inside it, and that might kind of freak me out just a bit. You know, I'd rather know it's been proven to help people than uh, be the first one to try it. Sam won't be the first one. Roy Cohen-Kadosh has identified a volunteer child to kick off the new study. He and his team at Oxford are planning to get started by the end of this year. For Nova in the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Oxford. You can learn a lot more about ways we might one day boost our brain power. Watch Nova Science Now tonight. Host David Pogue asks the question, how smart can we get? And next week, the program explores innovative foods, and we'll go to a taste testing in Paris where adventurous eaters try food in edible packaging. I'm really, really curious about it because I always dream about being able to eat the cup of my yogurt, so I can't wait. That's next Wednesday when we and Nova Science Now ask, can I eat that? This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the Oprah of Egypt, a TV host who can relate to poor Egyptians. And later, Saudi Arabia's first hip-hop DJ. I get a lot of criticism sometimes saying, why are you taking a culture that is so uh, American and want to force it to the people who are living in Arabia? I'm not trying to force anything. Those stories ahead on the world. 
NPRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The investigation into child sex abuse charges against a former BBC TV host continues to widen. Jimmy Savile died last year, hailed at the time as a British cultural icon. But allegations have surfaced that he molested as many as 200 young girls and boys, some on BBC premises. This week, the BBC's director general testified before a parliamentary panel. Lawmakers want to know what BBC officials knew and when they knew it. And they're especially interested in why the BBC TV program Newsnight decided not to air a documentary exposing the allegations. The latest evidence surrounding that decision is an email message sent by BBC reporter Liz McKean. In that message, she says the Newsnight editor shelved the documentary because the victims making the charges were, quote, teenagers, not too young, end quote. Christina Patterson is a columnist at the, at the independent newspaper in London. What actually was very shocking, and that's emerged over the past few days, both in a programme on Monday night called Panorama, which investigated this whole thing, and in some emails that were leaked to or sent to Channel 4 News yesterday, was that actually the reason the editor of Newsnight dropped the story was because he thought it wasn't a strong enough story. He thought that paraphrasing, uh, because one of the reporters used these words and they're not his words, but she said that he thought that the girls weren't that young, that it was a long time ago, and that the sex offences weren't that serious, which, of course, is absolutely shocking if Mm. that's true. Well, I'd like to play a clip now of uh, BBC Director General George Entwistle uh, speaking to members of Parliament of the BBC's own capacity to investigate the scandal, uh, including that documentary program, Panorama, you just mentioned uh, on the BBC that aired this in-depth look into the scandal on Monday night. Here's uh, George Entwistle. Here is an organisation investigating itself in its own airtime on its main TV channel with appropriate resources given to the task and asking questions of itself that I don't believe any other media organisation on earth would do. The BBC's capacity to interrogate its own corporate situation, its own corporate priorities, its own corporate handling of things, is unmatched in the world. So, Christina Patterson, you've been covering this story. From what you've seen so far, do you think the BBC is showing the toughness, the capacity to interrogate its own corporate structure? The point George Entwistle made about Panorama is absolutely right. I I mean, to sit there, it was quite thrilling, actually, on Monday night to sit there and watch this programme, which was actually, um, you know, saying terrible things about other people in the organisation. I'm not sure there are that many other news or broadcasting organisations in the world that would do that. This is my second BBC interview today, slagging off the BBC, you know, which, Mm. which again, I mean, I work on a newspaper. You sure as hell couldn't do that in a newspaper. You know, you couldn't slag off the proprietor or the editor in the paper and expect to keep your job. So, you know, I think it's important to keep a sense of proportion in relation to all of this. 
from a journalistic point of view, it can interrogate itself fairly effectively. And I think these inquiries will do that. And certainly, poor George Entwistle had a thorough grilling from MPs in the Select Committee yesterday. So my, my feeling is that the BBC will have no trouble getting to the bottom of this. Whether George Entwistle will remain in his job is another matter. Christina, what's your sense of what this scandal, uh, the Jimmy Savile scandal, has meant for the trust Britons and the whole world put in the BBC, arguably one of the most, if not the most trusted news organizations in the world? Well, I think it's very, very serious. And I think John Simpson, who's been at the BBC for more than 50 years, who's one of the most eminent broadcasters, said it's the most serious crisis facing the BBC in 50 years. I'm not sure that that's true, but I think it is a very serious crisis. And I think Entwistle did not present himself well to MPs yesterday. I also think that actually people at the top of organisations often have a rather slender grasp about what goes on uh, below them. They shouldn't, and particularly if you're the director of an organisation that's funded by the licence payer and you're on a very good salary, frankly, you should do better than that. But the truth is that... We all know that people at the top, you know, they they don't engage with all the detail of stuff. And um, I don't think, I think it's not good. I don't, certainly doesn't reflect well on his management and leadership. But I don't think it's always all that surprising. Now, Christina, the incoming chief executive of The New York Times is the BBC's former director, Mark Thompson. He's supposed to start his new job at The Times on November 12th. But today, the New York Times public editor, their ombudsman, Margaret Sullivan, weighed in on a blog post, and she questioned Thompson's suitability for the job. What is known about Thompson's role in the scandal, the Jimmy Savile scandal at this point? Certainly so far, he has claimed not to know anything about this and he hasn't been deemed to be culpable. I mean, clearly, in one sense, anyone at the top of an organisation where bad stuff happens is culpable and, you know, one has to take responsibility. But I'm, I think we don't know enough yet to know whether he, he actually is. Christina Patterson, a writer and columnist at The Independent Newspaper in London. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today's GeoQuiz comes with an excellent view of the Persian Gulf. We're looking for a city that's a major oil port in Saudi Arabia's eastern province. It's home base for the Saudi oil and natural gas company Aramco. The company may be the world's most valuable company, all $800 billion worth of it. Aramco owns several massive oil fields, including the world's largest, the Gawar field. So can you name the Saudi city where Aramco is headquartered? We'll hear more about the recent cyber attack on the Saudi oil giant that's reverberating in Washington when we come back with the answer. Egypt wishes it had oil to boost its struggling economy. A large number of Egyptians are having a hard time making ends meet these days, which may be why a working-class Egyptian woman has recently skyrocketed to fame with a new kind of TV show. She cooks and dishes out advice. Tara Tadras Whitehill reports from Cairo on the Oprah of Egypt. While the onions and garlic start to cook in the oil, Khalia Mohammed buzzes around the set of her cooking show called Il Sit Khalia, or Mrs. Khalia. She wears a bright pink hijab and a string of fake pearls, which highlight her round, smiling face. She's been called the Oprah of Egypt, and like Oprah Winfrey, Khalia rose to fame from poverty. She's from one of the poorest suburbs in Cairo and used to work long hours as a maid. 
One day, a relative of her wealthy employer tasted her food and decided to make her the star of his newest television program, a cooking show for the masses, something that had never been tried before in Egypt. Some people criticized us when we began because they weren't used to seeing people like us on TV. They are used to seeing big chefs and celebrities cooking meat and turkey and the fancy food, but they were not used to seeing people cook simple food that Egyptians usually eat like we do. The idea of the program is simple. Good, cheap dishes using ingredients Egyptians actually use. The set is made to look like her kitchen, cramped, strewn with homey knickknacks, and practical, inexpensive cookware. She cooks on a small stovetop. Each show is taped live, and Ghalia makes four to five meals. Each dish is meant to serve at least eight people, for less than 30 cents per portion. This is crucial in a country where over 15 million people live on less than a dollar a day, and food prices are continuing to rise. With her bubbly energy and contagious smile, Ghalia isn't just a chef. She's a counselor, too. Viewers phone in, and Ghalia chats with them about the problems they are facing in their own lives. She says this is especially important for poor women who might feel they otherwise wouldn't have a voice. On this episode, Ghalia is cooking a pasta dish while talking with the viewer Um Ahmed. Um Ahmed tells Ghalia how much the show means to her and says she feels Ghalia is like a sister. Amira Fauzi, Ghalia's producer, explains that the show fills a vital role in post-revolutionary Egypt. It started as a cooking show for the poor, but has also evolved into a program where everyone has a voice, no matter what their economic status. She also addresses human rights, social issues, marital issues, and women's rights. She expresses it in a simple way. She solves problems on air and gives popular sayings that would make people understand her better. We are trying to reach this audience in a simple, straightforward way. The Facebook page for El Sir Ghalia has swelled to over 100,000 followers and keeps on growing. Ghalia says none of this would have been possible without the Egyptian revolution. Of course, everything has changed after the revolution. Before the revolution, the media used to attack poor, simple people on TV. They didn't want us on. But now she believes people like her and her children will have more opportunities. The Egyptian people brought down the old regime. And there's a sense that anything is possible, especially if everyone pitches in. I am hoping that they will grow up and have a chance to work and benefit their country as well. That's the main thing. It's their responsibility to help their country. Because if they make their country better, they make themselves better. But despite her successes, the Oprah of Egypt still has a long way to go before she surpasses the real thing. Open your boxes. One, two, three. You get a car! You get a car! You get a car! Everybody gets a car! Dahlia can't give away cars yet, but she's giving away something just as valuable right now. A message of hope served up one meal at a time. For The World, I'm Tara Tadras-Whitehill in Cairo. Watch the Egyptian Oprah strutter stuff in the kitchen. We've got a video with subtitles at theworld.org. Just ahead, we'll introduce you to the hip-hop scene in Saudi Arabia. But first, we answer today's geo-quiz. The Saudi Arabian oil giant known as Saudi Aramco 
is headquartered in the eastern Saudi city of Dharan. And it's there that a massive cyber attack took place back in August. Details are still emerging. Washington reporter Dan DeLuce covers the Pentagon for the French news agency AFP. So this cyber attack went down back in August, Dan. What do we know about how the hackers were able to penetrate Aramco's uh, presumably impenetrable security? Well, the U.S. intelligence agencies haven't explicitly said exactly how uh, it was done. There's a wide suspicion that it was an inside job, that someone inside the company uh, somehow planted the virus, and it appeared on a, on a night of a, a very holy night for the Islamic faith when most of the employees were not there. And there were news reports afterward that Aramco, which is the world's largest oil company, had this massive attack, and it meant that something like more than 30,000 computers uh, were just basically wiped out. The memories were information was wiped out. And so they had to completely, uh, you know, repair and revamp all their computers. But it did not hit their, they say it did not hit their oil operations, but it hit all all sorts of internal uh, networks and and files. I guess we can say encouragingly that uh, not a drop of oil was spilled. So this this virus was called Shamoon, nicknamed the wiper. I guess that's uh, pretty self-explanatory. Was that indeed what the virus was designed to do, wipe out the hard drives of these computers? certainly seems that way, and, and it's similar to some other viruses that have done that elsewhere. It was not, for example, on the level of Stuxnet, which was the virus that hit Iran's uh, nuclear program and its uranium enrichment facilities. But it definitely gave uh, Aramco a black eye, and I think it, it definitely caught the attention of the U.S. government as well. And, and the, hence you have the defense secretary without naming Iran, but uh, making up some pretty strong statements and, and expressing real concern about this attack. Well, let me ask you about that, because uh, just last week in New York, uh, Defense Secretary Panetta said that, you know, one of the big security problems for this country, for the world, is the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor. And as you say, now pointing the finger at Iran, what's the evidence? provide evidence, but he, he definitely said that the U.S. is vulnerable and that he mentioned uh, the attack on Aramco as, as the most sophisticated private uh, sector a cyber attack, most large-scale cyber attack that's occurred. And uh, he also mentioned that some large banks on Wall Street were also hit by uh, denial-of-service attacks, which are less sophisticated, nevertheless troublesome. And uh, he has portrayed this Pearl Harbor-type potential threat before, but the speech was significant, and it was sort of overshadowed because there was a vice presidential debate that night. But I think they feel that the U.S. is most vulnerable, not with the military computer networks or the U.S. government's networks, but the private sector's computer networks, and that some companies are not sufficiently vigilant about protecting their networks, and that it's relatively easy for uh, someone to launch a cyber attack that would not have to be all that sophisticated and could create a lot of damage. And I should say, too, that the Pentagon's also talking about, and Panetta mentioned in his speech, that the U.S. was prepared to take what amounts to preemptive action if they think that a cyber attack is imminent, that they would be prepared to take a preemptive, you know, cyber offensive operation. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, uh, has not gotten a lot of attention, uh, given that all the attention has been on the presidential election. But that's quite a statement. And of course, what's not being said is that it's widely believed and been widely reported that the U.S. was behind or involved in the cyber attack on 
on Iran's nuclear program, and that this attack on the Saudi uh, oil sector, oil company, was uh, some kind of retaliation by Iran for the Stuxnet attack that hit them so hard. Dan DeLuce covers the Pentagon for AFP, and he's been telling us about the Shamoon virus that attacked Saudi Aramco. Dan, good to speak with you. Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. As if the Middle East wasn't seeing enough turmoil, tensions are flaring again between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Dozens of rockets and bombs have been fired from Gaza into southern Israel over the past two days, damaging several homes. Israel, for its part, has carried out airstrikes in Gaza and says it will do whatever it takes to halt the attacks. Amidst all this, the Emir of Qatar, a U.S. ally, yesterday became the first head of state to visit Gaza since Hamas seized control in 2007. The world's Middle East correspondent is Matthew Bell. He's in Jerusalem. Now, there have been rounds of clashes before, Matthew. How unusual is it that Hamas is now saying openly that it's attacking Israel? That is something new, Marco. And the militant wing of Hamas, the Qassam Brigades, issued a statement today saying that uh, at least one of their militants were killed in recent days in an Israeli strike and that they participated in launching rockets at southern Israel in response. Right. So how serious could this get? Is this some kind of watershed moment? This is the thing, is it's been going on for years like this, flaring up and then quieting down. And the understanding, the experts will all tell you, is that neither Israel nor Hamas wants to go to war. However, this this dangerous dance that these two powers have been engaged in for all this time, uh, there's always the possibility that uh, of unintended consequences, if you will, uh, of war breaking out. I wasn't down in southern Israel today, but I've been there before. After these rockets and mortars have landed, it's scary stuff. You know, houses are destroyed. People have been killed in the past. Israelis say, look, if one of these things hits a school or a hospital, kills a bunch of people, all bets are off. It's going to change the whole situation. This new round of shelling hasn't had any unintended consequences yet, but it does happen against this backdrop, the story of the emir of Qatar going to Gaza. Why was he there? What did he say? What's he doing there? Uh, I think the Qataris want to show their influence for a small country with lots of money. They want to show that they have political influence um, in the region. Qatar is an interesting actor because it has a relationship with the United States. The Fifth Fleet is there. They've also been pretty good, lower-level relations with Israel itself. But Qatar wants to have credibility in the Arab world, and one way of getting it is to demonstrate a relationship and support in Gaza. You know, there's, there's some speculation here in Israel, Marco, that the emir's visit and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood next door in Egypt have made Hamas more bold to perhaps launch more strikes or allow other militant groups to launch strikes against Israel. Again, there's that possibility that things could get really bad, really violent very quickly here. The world's Matthew Bell speaking with us from Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. Finally today, meet Big Haas. Real name, Hassan Dinawi. He's a DJ in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and his mission is to bring real hip-hop to the conservative Arab kingdom. He lectures every Saturday evening on his radio show called Leish Hip Hop, or Why Hip Hop. Most of the hip hop artists that are in Saudi Arabia, or maybe some of them, are projecting themselves the wrong image about hip hop. Why? Because unfortunately they're trying to copy Tupac and Biggie. Tupac was known to be in the thug or gang uh, you know, theme because he did that. He lived that life. He was real. 
So you cannot be living in a mansion and having a Mercedes Benz and then you're telling me you're a thug. This is the problem that we have in Saudi Arabia. Big Hus, you gave a, a TED talk in Jeddah last year. You spoke to over a thousand men and women about yeah. your love of hip hop. What did you tell them? I actually told them about the true passion that I have about hip hop and how we as Arabs have great hip hop movement by actually saying a small verse from an uh, American Syrian hip hop artist. It's called Omar Effendim. And the track was called Superhero. It just makes sense right now to all these Arab revolts that are going on, meaning that we always link superhero to Spider-Man, Superman, and Batman, and all these people. His message was superhero are the people of that when they unite and they want something, they can do it. Regard- Give us a couple of lines from a superhero. Do you, do you know any by heart? He says in the chorus, it goes like, uh, look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. It's an Arab superhero, and he came to bring change. Unite the divided and free them from the chains. Like I said, the problem in the Arab pop world is that 99.9% of the time they talk about love and relationship and, you know, she left me, I love her, she cheated on me. And this is something different from an Arabic perspective, talking about what the Arab people think, what the Arab people feel. I I get a lot of criticism sometimes saying, why are you taking a culture that is so uh, American and want to force it to the people who are living in Arabia? Yeah, what do you say to that? Yeah, I'm not trying to force anything. What I'm saying is that if you want to speak and think like that, then we don't have to have any chairs or TVs because there's nothing made in Arabia. (laughs) So you really need to take the positive things and, you know, implement it in your own way that suits your culture. Which leads me to this next question. Are hip hop and Islam compatible? Yes, of course. Islam is, is a religion of peace. And right now, when you, when you talk Islam, unfortunately, about three or four weeks ago, this movie came on, on The Prophet, a movie that I swear my two-year-old can direct it better. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. But the, what pisses me off and pisses most of the Muslims off is the reaction that some of the Muslims had in Arab countries. And this is not the reaction that the Prophet himself You're, told you're talking about the, the, the storming of the U.S. embassy and uh, the killing of the, the ambassador. The, the, the exactly, exactly. The, the killing of an innocent soul. I mean, I met the ambassador once, and he's a very big, big hip-hop head, very, very supportive. You're talking about uh, the late Chris Stevens. Yes, mm. yes. And this is something that Islam does not promote or even allow. And, and there's another hip-hop track that came up by two artists, one of them is called Dean, and the other is called Sphinx. And they both combined in a track called Muslim. How, how to really reply to something like that, which is something you don't reply with violence. That's the end of it. Got this idiot from my city with the media, media coverage, man. This is the stuff I can't stomach. Because how you push this garbage movie to the public when even the actors say we ain't said that he dubbed it. Even worse, some took the bait. Like a god fearing atheist, you question a faith. But wait, you can't combat so yes, I would say Islam and hip-hop are very much compatible. It's just you have to have an open mind in terms of what, what is said. Let me ask you about American hip-hop, uh, because mm-hmm. you, you feature a lot of uh, U.S. hip-hop artists that don't get picked up by major labels. Uh, yes. Who are they, and how do you connect with them, and how do you kind of convince them that you know, Saudi Arabia would be a great starting point for their, their career? Wow. One of the artists that I look up to in terms of uh, human slash artist is Brother Ali. Brother Ali is from Minneapolis. And, you know, believe it or not, he sells more tickets, more shows than Kanye West and Jay-Z in that city. Yeah. I mean, this guy is just uh, brilliant. There is an artist called Macklemore, which is taken the U.S. by storm. This guy 
has no label, took over the iTunes hip-hop download chart for over two weeks right now. He's still number one. Big Haas, whose radio show is Leish Hip Hop, or Why Hip Hop, the Saudi Arabian Kingdom's very first hip-hop FM radio program. Great to speak with you. This is Big Haas signing off from Saudi Arabia, Jeddah. One love, one peace. We're one world, one humanity. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Can we go back? This is the moment. Can't Hold Us by Macklemore, picked for you by Big Haas himself. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. Can I kick it? Thank you. Yeah, I'm so damn grateful. I grew up really wanting gold fronts, but that's what you get when Wu Tang The World is a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.